Welcome to the Social Pros Podcast, the content marketing awards winner for best marketing podcast. This is where we shine the spotlight on real people doing real work in social media and learn the social secrets of the world's most interesting brands. Social Pros is sponsored by Convince and Convert, social media strategy advisors and counselors to leading brands and organizations worldwide. Convince and Convert makes your social better. Emma, which provides innovative email marketing tools that drive brilliant results. Salesforce Marketing Cloud, inspiring one-to-one connections with your customers with integrated solutions for social, mobile, email, web, and advertising. And Yext, whose award-winning location management platform helps companies of all sizes drive more foot traffic to their doors. With Yext, update your location data once and publish it to your website, apps, over 100 publishers, including Google, Apple Maps, Facebook, Bing, and Yahoo. That's the power of location. That's Yext. Your Social Pros co-hosts are Adam Brown from Salesforce Marketing Cloud and Jay Bear from Convince and Convert. Ready? Let's get to work. Welcome to Social Pros, the real social media show for people doing real social media work. This is Adam Brown, and your question probably already is, why is Adam doing the intros today? This is typically something that is done by my very esteemed co-host, Jay Bear. Jay is actually on assignment this week. Uh, that's actually something I've wanted to say for so long. You know, n- n- network anchors always go on assignment. They never feel under the weather. They never go on vacation. They never have to spend, you know, 48 hours at a local jail because of some, you know, in- indiscretion that they made. They're always on assignment. But I can assure you, Jay is doing none of those things. He is actually spending a early summer vacation with his family, Chris Cossing, the country. He'll be back next week with, I'm sure, some great stories to tell. But the benefit for you and certainly the benefit for me here is I get to spend the entire time speaking to one of my favorite authors and and definitely one of the smartest people I ever get a chance to uh, to speak to, and that is Jonah Berger. You may know Jonah. You may know his previous book. Jonah is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Contagious, why Things Catch On, one of my favorite books and one that I've given to a lot of my team members uh, in, in social media. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Jonah is also a professor of marketing at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business and is the author of his new book, uh, Invisible Influencer, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. And Jonah, welcome to Social Pros and thank you for, uh, for spending some time with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Sure. One of the things I love just starting out about, about your, your new book here is that this is not a marketing book. It's not a self-help book. It's not a psychology or a sociology book. It's, it's really kind of all of them, right? It definitely is. Um, and folks that have read Contagious know that I, I like two things. Uh, I like science and I like stories. Uh, stories are good. They're fun. They're a great way to explain things. But if there's not any science in those stories, they're not very helpful. They end up leading us right when we should go left. And and science is great. It's really important to understand why things work. But uh, sometimes it can be a little boring and a little dry. And so uh, just like as in Contagious, which was a, a mix of science and stories, and Invisible Influence, I've really tried to bring together Together, a bunch of disparate streams of research uh, to help us, uh, whether in our in our business lives, be better marketers uh, and convince and influence others, but also in our personal lives, uh, do everything from make better decisions to be more motivated. And so, it's really all about the underlying science and how we can apply it to live happier and healthier lives. 
I think that point is is one that Jay and I often talk about on the show. This this kind of combining of art and science that you know that we all whatever we do we, we need to be more effective in. And I think that's one of the things that that books like yours really makes for I think a more interesting read. Um, as, as I read through the book, and we're going to go through a couple of the the case studies that that you share, I really remarked on the fact that these are as much case studies as they are case stories. You know, case studies sometimes can sound clinical and, and kind of boring, but one of the things you've done masterfully is, is really turning them into to stories. And I think one, one thing I want to ask you a little bit about is the premise of, of this book. You know, as, as I read it, you know, as, as a marketer, as a communicator, as well as a consumer, you know, it's easy for all of us to think that we're in complete control of the decisions that we make, that we balance, you know, the decisions that we make with our independent thought with all those outside kind of impacts and whether that's uh, marketing, whether that's personal observation, whether it's recommendations from our families and friends, um, all these things really can impact us. And we like to think that we are complete control of what impacts us and that we know all the things that are impacting us. But that's, that's really not the case, is it? You know, it's so interesting. If, if you think about uh, the last decision you made, whether it was a simple thing like, I don't know, what breakfast cereal to buy or, uh, you know, which can of soup to pick up from the store or something much more complex and important, like who to vote for uh, in this upcoming election or, you know, whether to take a new job or stick with your old one. When we think about decisions like those, we tend to think that the locus of those decisions lies within us. Our preferences, our likes, our dislikes, uh, you know, the things we want to do and achieve versus the things we don't. And all of that makes a lot of sense, uh, except that it's wrong. If you actually look at most decisions we make, most actions that we take, other people have a huge impact on our behavior from things like, you know, our spouse it happens to be voting. So we end up turning out when otherwise we might not have gone to the polls to our roommate in college has a big impact on the grades we get to even more complex things like what careers we pursue or whether we decide to marry one person or another. It ends up that these subtle influences in the environment, the people we surround ourselves with and even strangers that we may only interact with briefly, we never, never even talk to have a big impact on our behavior. And so that's what the book is about, really shining a light on these often invisible, uh, invisible influences and, and showing us how to use those influences to make our own lives better. Again, as, as, as a lot of the listeners to the show are, are marketers or communicators, they're social media professionals. Again, like me, there's half of me that goes, wow, this is really a positive thing because as a marketer and as a communicator, this, this, this concept can really help us to inform and educate the public and, and drive them to whatever outcome that we like. But as a consumer and as an individual, there's a little part of this that, that gives me a little bit of pause. So as, as you look at it as a, uh, as, as, as a professor and as, as, as a marketing expert, do you, do you look at this and go, okay, this is actually a good thing or hmm, this, this can be something that's a little bit tenuous? When, when someone says the word influence, we often think about it as sort of a dirty word. Yeah. Um, like influence is a bad thing. Like being influenced is, is a bad thing. And, and part of that is the culture that we live in. You know, in American culture, we all think that we're rugged individualists, completely different from everybody else. Our kids are all, you know, special snowflakes that are, that are different from everybody else. And being the same is, is bad. You know, if Timmy jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge as well? Of course not. But if we step back for a second, there are a couple points that are, that are worth note. 
First, influence isn't just uh, doing the same thing as others. Uh, and in fact, if you think about it, influence actually helps us a lot of the time. Uh, imagine you couldn't read restaurant reviews before going out to dinner, for example. Or imagine you couldn't read book reviews or look at something like a New York Times bestseller list to figure out what book to read. Life would be a lot more complicated. It would require a lot more effort. Um, you know, we use these subtle uh, cues, these simple things in the environment, almost like shortcuts to help us figure out how to make better and easier decisions than we could have otherwise. And so others help us a lot. But, but that second point, again, is, you know, influence isn't just about being the same as others. Just as often, influence leads us to do the opposite thing of someone else. So, uh, you know, a band gets too popular and we start listening to something else. We avoid listening to that band. Uh, we're out to dinner and a friend of ours orders the entree we're thinking of getting. We end up picking something else, even though it makes us less happy. And so influence isn't just about making people do the same thing as others. It's a little bit more like a magnet. Sometimes it attracts and, and leads people to do the same as others, but just as often it repels and leads people to do something different. Jonah, that, that reminds me of one of the quotes that you put in the book and a quote that I think many people have heard from Yogi Berra. You know, the one is that nobody goes to that restaurant anymore. It's too crowded. Uh, and, and certainly the, the idea of what you're talking about and in the book you call the kind of the drive for differentiation uh, is, is certainly the case. And um, one thing that certainly I've kind of picked up on and would love to hear your thoughts and insights on is that younger people, millennials are more apt, uh, and you're going to have to keep me honest here, to to kind of want to be kind of that, that, that anti- Imitators, they they kind of want to go a little bit against the grain, uh, and and certainly the, their their feelings for authenticity and genuineness and everything they do has a little bit of impact on that. Am I am I am I on target with that, or is that just simply a perception? Authenticity is is so important, uh, and I think we can see it today in a, in a number of different domains. From uh, if I'm posting on social media, if it looks like an ad, people don't want to share it to the trend to, you know, uh, designer cocktails and sort of, um, you know, smaller batch whiskeys and, and cases where people are really looking to show their connoisseurship, uh, not just that they're doing what everyone else is doing. Um, I think that there's two parts to this, um, this trend, though. One is something that's been going along for a while. And, and even before the, the internet, you know, younger people are always looking to find their identity. Um, you know, kids in their teenage years, the first time they're away from their parents, it's their first time they're making decisions for themselves. Um, and so differentiating themselves from their parents, from their families, um, is the way they strike out on their own and, and set up who they are rather than just uh, uh, their parents. And I think this shows up today in some interesting ways. Uh, if you think about YouTube, for example, and, and one reason uh, people love YouTube, it's giving people an opportunity to share their opinion. You know, if you're 13 years old, um, you don't really get a chance to make many choices in your life. Um, you go to school, your parents decide what you wear, they decide how much money you have. And so social media is, is an opportunity, it's free for you to share your opinion, you know, comment on a video, say you like it, say you don't like it. It's a new way to differentiate yourself and, and share that opinion. Um, and so some of this is old, you know, it's, social media isn't the first case where people want to differentiate themselves, but it's provided some new and interesting ways to do that, playing a, a different possibility on an, an old motivation that's been around for a long time. You know, there's the, you know, the, the old adage is there's safety in the herd and, and, and going with making the same decision, um, that, that perhaps people like you or your predecessors have made, you know, you know, is, is, is certainly kind of a, a, a testament to that. Is there, is there safety, as you're saying, kind of in, in going the opposite way to differentiate yourself, to make a, another decision? And even with that, I think one of the things that I kind of question is, 
how did how did all this happen? How did how do people decide um, kind of whether they're going to be a you know a, a herd follower or they're going to be the horse of, of different color? I think one of the the great case studies uh, that you share, Jonah, in the um, in the book is is around Morgan Bryan, a, a young soccer player, and that you know some things can culture and even your your order of 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 of, of siblings can have an impact on whether you're going to be a you know, herd follower, or you're going to be kind of that horse of a different color. It's, it's so interesting. Many of us have either older or younger siblings, uh, and we see these at, at work in our own families, but the story of, of Morgan Bryan is, is a great one. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at whether it's her or, or many actually, um, famous soccer players or soccer players that have done well, or even just elite athletes in general, you notice that they have something in common. Obviously, they're very good at the sport they play. But when researchers tried to figure out, okay, you know, what is it that seems to be correlated with their success? How do we predict whether someone's going to be better or worse? They, they found that most elite athletes tend to have older siblings. Um, and in some ways, that makes sense. Uh, if we think about it, you know, uh, if you're a young kid and you have an older sibling that plays soccer, you learn to play soccer from your older sibling. You follow them around to practice. Uh, you kick the ball around with them at home. Uh, you compete against them. And so they make you a better player. So that by itself isn't surprising. Except what's interesting is that elite athletes actually had older siblings that played a sport, but not necessarily the same sport that they themselves end up succeeding at. So if you were a great soccer player, for example, your older sibling might be a volleyball player. Uh, if you're a great football player, your older sibling might be a baseball player. And so why is it that having an older sibling around makes you better, but, but at a different sport? Uh, and it turns out that there's this mix of similarity and differentiation that, uh, you know, think about it. If you have an older sibling that's really good at, at soccer, it's hard to be better at soccer than, than they am, are. Uh, you know, you're younger than they are. Uh, you're not as big as they are. And so it's challenging to displace them. You may want to follow them, but they're already bigger than you. In some sense, that niche is taken. Uh, and it's not just sports. Uh, you know, firstborn siblings, for example, tend to do better in school. And so tech secondborn siblings tend to do better at something else. Part of what we're doing with our siblings is not just trying to be the same or looking up to them. We're also trying to be different at the, at the same time. If, if our older sibling's the funny one, we might be the academic one. And if our older sibling is the artsy one, well, then we might be something else. And so siblings both provide a path to follow, but they also show that path is a little bit taken already. And so really what's going on is, is a mix of two things. One, this drive to be similar, to look like others and to imitate but at the same time, the drive for differentiation. And you see this in, in YouTube as well. You know, if you think about it, imagine you, you go to a, a video you haven't seen before. You're trying to decide what to watch it. You might use a time-tested trick, which is how popular is it? If it's not very popular, if it only has a few views, well, you might decide it's probably not worth watching. If it has a whole bunch of views, it's probably pretty good. And so, sure, we use others as a signal of what we should do. But at the same time, we also want to differentiate ourselves as well. If something is too popular, we want to find something different. And so there's this fine line between similarity and difference, something that's often called optimally distinctiveness, that, that's really our goal. We don't want to be just similar. We don't want to be just different. We want to be optimally distinct, similar and, and different at the same time. And there's even kind of a space kind of between those two things. I think you call it the illusion of difference um, in, in your in your book. And, and, and I, when I read that, I read it kind of as, 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 as perceived scarcity. And you've got brands like, like Rolex, for example. Rolex you know, wants you to believe 
that that when you purchase a Rolex, you, your 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 watch has been handcrafted. It's been made by a watchmaker that's toiled, and it is unlike any other Rolex out there. They don't want you to know that they actually sold over a million watches last year, and your Rolex Submariner that you wear on your wrist proudly um, is is actually one that's probably like just exactly like four hundred thousand other Submariners that they they sold last year. So, is there kind of a space in between here where marketers and and branding people really want you to feel like you are uh, differentiating yourselves, but in in reality, you know, you are kind of part of the herd. I ran a, a little experiment uh, as part of the book that, that I think speaks to this very nicely. So I showed people uh, two Longchamp bags, so two sort of high-end handbags uh, that were pretty similar, uh, except uh, they were a different color. So one, I think, was a blue color, for example, and one may have been a red color. And so similar size, similar shape, similar price, similar manufacturer, all that was different was the color. Uh, and I showed it to people. And, and indeed, most people said, oh, you know, those bags look pretty similar. If I asked them, you know, are they the same? Are they different? They said they're basically the same. But there was one set of people that didn't think they were the same. And those were people that already owned one of those bags. For people who owned one of those bags, they looked at them and said, they're completely different. Look, you know, one is blue and the other one is red. They really focused on the way that they were different. Um, and there's a funny story that I, that I tell in the book uh, with, with my father, actually. So my, my dad is a lawyer in Washington, D.C., and I told him I was doing some research on social influence. And he said, yeah, you know, D.C. lawyers, just they're so prone to social influence. Like the first thing a young lawyer does is, you know, they make a bit of money, they, they make a partner, they go out and they buy a new BMW. And I said, well, dad, yeah, that, that's true. But, you know, you, you are actually a DC lawyer and don't you drive a BMW? And he said, oh, yes, but, but mine is a blue one and they all drive gray ones. And, <laughs> and what I think is so interesting about that is you pointed out that illusion of distinction. You know, we, we want to be different. We don't need to be different, but we want to see ourselves as different. And so even when we're not extremely different, we focus on, on the ways that we are different. We focus on the dimensions that we seem more different rather than dimensions that we seem more diff, uh, similar. We focus on the ways that we stand out rather than the ways that we fit in. And, and as you nicely noted, this is really important if we're a luxury manufacturer. So it's one thing if I'm selling Captain Crunch, for example, or you know even soda. But if I'm selling a high-end watch, part of what people are buying is not just the watch. They're buying what the watch signals about them. They're not just buying it for what that product does. They're buying it for what it means, what it communicates about them to others. And so part of what they're buying is that high-end status. But status isn't so great if everyone else has that status. And so one challenge, I think, particularly as a, a social media manager for some of these high-end brands, is how do you maintain that sense of scarcity and exclusivity? How do you maintain this sense of, well, you know, it's special, it's different, it's not for everybody, yet at the same time, you're reaching out on a medium that necessarily is accessible to everyone. And so I think that's one of the big challenges, how to make it uh, feel distinct, even though it may not always be as, as distinct as consumers might like. And I think one of the things you, you, you mentioned uh, in the book, too, is this idea that it also depends on who else has it. Uh, one of the, the great cases that you, uh, that, you, that you showcase in the book is what I call the Snooky story, the story of a, uh, of a marketer of, of a luxury uh, purse brand, much, much like the luxury purse brand that you mentioned, 
um, sending Snooky a, uh, a, a, a purse, but unlike the typical product placement and, uh, and, and endorse, perceived endorsement concepts that have, that have been part of marketing from, from day one, hey, we, we send the celebrity's bag, hopefully he or she will, will, will carry it. In this case, the Gucci handbag that was sent to Snooky wasn't from Gucci, was it? <laughs> this is an amazing story. So uh, many of your listeners may remember Snooki uh, of, uh, of Jersey Shore fame. She was kind of the short one that had a very profane mouth and uh, sort of a fake tan so much that she almost looked like a parking cone. Uh, and she was one of the standout stars of the story. Uh, and a company actually sent her a free handbag. And that by itself is not surprising. Uh, you know, Gucci might send someone a Gucci handbag because they assume, look, if this person's out there and they get pictured in the press uh, or they show up in InTouch magazine, that's product placement. That's free advertising for the brand. And more people will see the product and, and more people will buy it. There was only one sort of interesting hitch to the story, which is it wasn't that Gucci uh, sent Snooki one of their handbags. It was one of Gucci's competitors that actually sent her one of their handbags, uh, one of Gucci's handbags. And so sitting there, you'd go, well, why would a company send someone a free handbag from their competitors? Why would they make their competitor's bag in, in some sense more prevalent or, or easy to see? It actually wasn't just uh, Snooki. Uh, something similar uh, happened to another Jersey Shore star, uh, Mike the Situation Sorrentino. So uh, he's the guy, situation known for sort of the six-pack. Uh, and Abercrombie and Fitch sent him a letter. And again, uh, one might imagine that uh, they sent him a letter offering to pay him money. That makes sense. Abercrombie wants him to wear their clothes. They think it'll sell them uh, more, more units of their clothes. But the letter was actually saying, don't wear our clothes. We'll pay you not to wear our clothes. Please stop wearing our clothes. And so I think what's interesting about both of those stories is they show that brands don't actually necessarily always want everyone using their product or their service. Because again, if, if part of your brand equity is what does it signal? What does it communicate to carry a Gucci handbag? Or what does it communicate uh, about you to, to shop at Abercrombie & Fitch? Part of that signal comes from the set of people that are doing it. It's not just the brand that gets to decide what Abercrombie and Fitch is. If, if Abercrombie and Fitch goes out there and says, "Hey, you know, we're about uh, really attractive, uh, you know, college students, uh, men and women, and that's who our brand is," but lots of teenagers like wearing the brand because they aspire to be those college kids then that's actually what the brand will come signal. It won't have that college identity. It'll have that high school identity. And as a result, even the high schoolers may start to want to go elsewhere because they want to signal that they're cool, not just that they're high school kids. And a big challenge then for brands is how do we maintain that meaning? How do we make sure that we maintain the positive associations and avoid the negative ones, get the desired identity signals and, and not the negative ones? I think, Jonah, that brings up kind of a, a concept that, that all of us as, as marketers are having to deal with more and more often. And that is, as we go into social media and as we see the, the marketing mix shift from paid placement and, and areas where, as a marketer, we have complete control over the message, over where the message is, is located, and even what emanates from that message, more to kind of the world closer to what public relations and communications has, have had to deal with, which is kind of, I think, where social lives in many instances, where we have less control. We put a message out there, but where it goes, what celebrity is seen, you know, clutching our, our handbag, what celebrity is seen, you know, doing something, whether it's implied endorsement or not, it has a, an impact. And, and that's something that I want to kind of come back to after we do our 
our uh, very important advertising messages. Uh, first advertiser of this show today is my employer, Salesforce uh, Marketing Cloud. And we just are so excited about the evolution of our Social Studio product. You've heard me talk about it each week on the Social Pros podcast and the evolutions that the product has had in its own right from being able to now do tunable sentiment. So as you uh, listen to the 1 billion sources that our social studio listening tool listens to, you can actually tune the sentiment to, uh, to control how that's being perceived and how your sentiment models are being measured. Um, reaching customers on any device and channel with advertising that's powered by identity-based targeting is really what Social Studio and our new Advertising Studio product is about. Advertising Studio has helped large agencies and brand teams around the world run millions of campaigns with sophisticated business goals. If you want any more information about uh, Marketing Cloud and Salesforce, please go to marketingcloud.com. That is www.marketingcloud.com. Cloud.com. Our second advertiser this week is Emma, Emma Mail. And believe it or not, neuroscience, uh, Jenna, that's probably something that's right up your alley too, is a huge factor in what makes some marketing emails work and others fail. So you have to check out this very super helpful guide from email called Your Brain on Email, The Science to Winning the Inbox. If you grab that, you'll learn six really cool facts about the human brain, and you'll see how top brands are using them to get brilliant results in the inbox. Check it out at myemma.com slash jbear. That's myemma.com slash the name of my humble co-host, J-A-Y-B-A-E-R. Our third and final advertiser to today's Social Pro Podcast with Jonah Berger is Convince and Convert's brand new uh email, daily email called Definitive Digest. DefinitiveDigest.com is a high-grade digital marketing guidance, topically sorted and curated to the max. Every day, it's a brand new topic, whether it's digital, whether it's social media, whether it's marketing, or most importantly, the one that encompasses all those, content marketing. If you want some great ideas to be in your email box each and every morning, I hope you'll go to definitivedigest.com and subscribe. It's from the super smart people that bring you this show, the super smart people that I get to work with every day at Convince and Convert. So we are now back with one of the smartest people I've ever got the opportunity to speak to, Jonah Berger, author of Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. A fantastic book. Uh, one of the cool things about the book, if you actually see the real tangible version, is the very, very cool cover that has one of those disappearing cover things that kind of reminds me, Jonah, of those 3D postcards that, uh, that I used to collect when I was a little kid. You'd, you'd hold it one way and you'd see one thing, you'd hold it the other way and you'd see uh, you'd see the other i think it's a it's a great packaging on on a great book if you get the kindle version um you, you won't probably get the benefits of that very cool uh tangible uh yeah, cover it's interesting we actually spent uh, spent a while on the cover and um you know while i i love cool cover designs what i wanted to make sure is it told the story of the book and the reason that we used a cover like this where depending on the angle you look at it you either do or you don't see something is that's really, I think, what happens with influence. Uh, you know, many of us will say, oh, yeah, I, I recognize their social influence out there. I mean, all those other people dress the same way and all the kids listen to the same music. The one place we really don't see influence is ourselves. Uh, you know, when we look inside, we don't see it. And so we wanted to build a cover that tries to reflect that. And so depending on the angle you look at it from, you either can see the influence or you can't. <laughs> 
Well, and I, I think and, and, and you being a, a, a multi-book author, you get the flexibility to do some really cool things like you're, you're doing in this book. And, and that's kind of one of the things I want to talk a little bit about is your, your origin story. Uh, Contagious was, was a huge hit, made you a New York Times bestselling author. Kind of talk to me about kind of your writing of Contagious and kind of what that moment was. And as you sat down to, to write Invisible Influence, your, 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 your latest book, kind of what went through your mind? What, what questions did you say that, hey, I, I wasn't able to answer and contagious and kind of how you wanted to create this book to tell a, a very distinct and very exciting story? And as we said at the beginning, whether you're a marketer or a communicator or just somebody fascinated by how our minds and, and, and collective you know, influence work. I, I wrote Contagious uh, with a specific goal in, in mind. And, and that was, uh, I think, everyone realized that word of mouth was important. They just didn't understand how to get it. Um, and so, uh, you know, even whether we're talking about online or offline word of mouth, you know, uh, companies are spending more and more money uh, on word of mouth marketing. They've recognized that traditional advertising doesn't work maybe as well as it used to. Word of mouth is more trusted and more targeted, um, but how do we get it? Uh, and so there weren't really any research-driven uh, uh, information out there. There were some papers academically, but uh, you know, every time I'd tell someone, "Oh, check out this paper," they'd say, "Oh, it's super boring." You know, is there any book I can read? And so I really wrote Contagious with with that in mind, saying, um, "How can we create a guide uh, for marketers, whether social media uh, marketers or folks that think about word of mouth offline?" to help people talk and share. There's a lot of great science out there, but it, it wasn't all being applied. And so wanted to bring some of that together, put it into a framework uh, and show people how to apply that science to get their message or their product or, or their idea to catch on. With Invisible Influence, it was a different, uh, a different reason. And um, you know, since Contagious came out, I've had the opportunity to speak to uh, hundreds of different audiences. Um, at this point, uh, a variety of different companies and organizations have consulted for everybody from big Fortune 500s to small startups. Uh, but often when I worked with companies or I, I gave a talk, somebody would say something along the lines of, oh, that's really interesting. But what about this other thing? Uh, and that other thing may be, you know, hey, I, I love this idea of spreading ideas. I love this idea of getting messages to catch on. But what if I'm trying to motivate my employees at, at the office? Or, you know, hey, I, I love this thing. But what if I'm trying to influence just one other person? I'm not trying to help something go viral. I'm just trying to influence, um, you know, my boss at the office or this person I'm working with or even someone at home. And I realized that those were great questions that Contagious didn't necessarily have the answer for. And I also realized that since Contagious came out, there's been a lot of new science out there, new research that's been done that changes the way we think about being an effective social media marketer. The, the sad thing about writing a book, unfortunately, uh, is when the book comes out, you've actually been working on it now for, for a few years. And so um, you know, much of the work that made it into Contagious was done before 2010. Uh, and so now we're at 2016, you know, six years later. Uh, there's a lot of things we've learned since then. Social media is definitely a, a quick changing uh, area. Lots of uh, different things we've learned and lots of interesting research. And so Invisible Influence in some ways is a sequel, though a, a different sequel. Um, it helps us understand some of the new research around social media and how to use it effectively. Uh, and also some broader set of questions that didn't make it into Contagious. 
Well, I think you hit upon something, Jonah, and that, that is the, the how fast are our industry uh, as marketers and communicators has, has changed. And it's changed certainly from a tactical standpoint, but also a very strategic standpoint. And my question to, to you is, as you talk to marketers and communicators, as you talk to brands about Contagious and now Invisible Influence, are you finding the people that are getting it, quote unquote, are, are more kind of looking at it from a scientific standpoint? They've got the right tools, they've got the right technology in order to, to make sure the message is being imbibed, or is it is it more those on the creative side that they are actually crafting the right stories and the right angles, or, or is it a little bit of, of both? What, what are you finding is the secret sauce in people who are successful in this, uh, this art. What's interesting about marketing today and and what I love uh, about marketing today is students often come to me and they say, Oh, you know, I'm thinking about doing doing marketing. How is marketing today? What is it different than the past? It's so much more analytical than it used to be. It's so data driven. Um, you know, the, uh, the availability of data, whether online or offline has really allowed us to do much better targeting, uh, than we ever could before much better focused messaging towards specific individuals or specific pockets or communities that we know might be interested. We can have different markets, uh, different messages for those those different markets. And so the availability of data has definitely changed the way marketing works. Um, and, and a lot of contagious and a lot of invisible influence is based on that rigorous science, helping us say, okay, how can we use what we know to be true um, to be more effective uh, as marketers? But beyond that, beyond the data side, there's still that question about how we apply these insights. We may learn, for example, uh, that certain types of content is more likely to be shared. So in Contagious, I talk about the steps, which are the six key factors that drive content to be passed on. We may want to apply emotion. We may learn that certain emotions drive sharing and, and others don't. But to use that, we still have to understand, okay, I know that these are the emotions that work. How do I create content that harness those emotions? And so it's, it's really a mix of creativity and data. It's really a mix of, of science and that storytelling again, making sure we're basing what we're doing on facts, on, on information that allows us to make those good, strong, data-driven decisions, but executing in a creative way, in a capacity that really encourages people to engage with us and, and our content. And, and that's, I think, what What's so exciting about being a marketer today. It's not one dimensional. You really need multiple tools to have in your toolkit and work with multiple types of individuals to be successful. I, I love that way that we approach it and completely accept and, and agree that you know the, the world of of marketing and communications has changed so dramatically. Last question before we get to the the final two big questions, and, and that is Jonah, kind of on the flip side of that, recognizing that as marketers and as communicators, as influencers, our world is changing. But on the side of the recipient, the the consumer, uh, the person who's on the other end of that megaphone. Um, how are they changing? Do they recognize that the world is is in a different space? And have they accepted the fact that there are so many other influences? Are they as receptive to those uh, those influences as much as they were? Or are they kind of receding into their shell? People are definitely aware that the marketing landscape has changed and, and consumers are much savvier uh, than they used to be. That's one reason that sort of traditional advertising is, is less effective is people know that marketers are trying to convince them. And so 
They have their persuasion radar up. They say, you know, you're trying to convince me I'm not going to trust your message. Uh, of course, you'd say your shampoo works great, um, you know, but you're never going to show a shampoo ad where the shampoo isn't great. Of course, you're going to say you're, you have fantastic service. But if you didn't have fantastic service, you'd still say you had great service. And so I think consumers are much savvier uh, than they've ever been before. And so marketers really need to be savvier as well. But I think the real opportunity as marketers is, is not to be savvy in a way of uh, you know, selling people something they don't need, but really using all this data and using all these insights to figure out what people need and to more effectively meet those needs. Um, that's, uh, you know, when I work with, with organizations, the, the main take-home message I say is, you know, be customer-focused rather than product-focused. At the end of the day, don't just say, you know, this is what we're good at. We've been good at this forever, so we're going to keep doing this. Think about really what the customer needs and wants and how you can deliver that value. And that's really when marketing is effective, right? Not convincing someone to buy something they don't need, but making them aware of something they want by providing them value at the end of the day. Absolutely. And that's what drives that lifetime value that any, any marketer, any communicator, any, any company for that matter really wants to, uh, to drive. Jonah Berger, it has been such a treat to have you on the show, author of Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. I've got two questions for you. Two questions. You've been on the show before, so you know how this works. Uh, question number one, what one tip would you give someone wanting to be a social yeah, pro? Yeah, you know, that, that one tip I think is a, is a simple one, but it's a very important one. And that's focus on the psychology rather than the technology. And it's really easy, uh, particularly as someone working in the social space, to get caught up with the, with the new technology. There's always a new rollout of a way that Twitter's doing something or Facebook changes something. There's always going to be a new app or a new service, um, you know, whether it's something big or has become big like a Snapchat or something that sort of was here and disappeared like a, like a peach. Um, there's always the challenge to sort of jump on and focus on the technology. But at the end of the day, we got to understand the psychology. Uh, you may have 10 million followers on on Twitter, but if they don't share your message, it's not going to matter. And so we really have to understand why people share, why they behave the way they do, and take advantage of that to get them to pass our message along. Great insight. Great advice. Last question for you. If you could do a Skype call with any living person, and Jonah, you've, you've had a chance to meet some pretty incredible people uh, as a New York Times bestselling author, but if you could do a Skype call with any living person, who would it be and now that's why? A, that's a tough one, uh, and I think I'm going to go with a, um, uh, a uh, simple answer, uh, sort of a boring answer, but, uh, but one I'd agree with, which is I'd love to, to have a couple minutes with uh, Barack Obama. I think he's had an interesting presidency. Um, I think, as we've seen, and this is partially driven by social media, um, you know, the political landscape's only become more divisive than it used to be. And uh, I think leading in this challenging environment, um, he's been a president that's used social effectively, that used the web effectively, um, really thought beyond just the traditional, I'm only going to do regular media. Uh, he's dipped his toe in. I think he's done a good job, and I think we could all learn a lot from that. Sure. And, and certainly a perfect segue in, into your book, because I think everything that the, that the president has done, uh, whether you agree with him or not, has been very much about influence and looking really at the relationship uh, with, uh, with the constituent. Jonah, thank you so much for being on uh, Social Pros and, uh, and spending the time with me. Thank you, listeners, for continuing to make our show one of the most popular uh, social media podcasts, if not the most popular social media podcast out there. Thank you for continuing to listen. Jay Bear will be back here next week, and we look forward to you joining us then. So until then, Jonah, thank you. Uh, this has been... Social Pros. 
Thanks for tuning in to Social Pros. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app. Go to socialpros.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. Social Pros is sponsored by Convince and Convert, Emma, Salesforce Marketing Cloud, and by Yext and is produced by Convince and Convert Media. Find more great shows like Social Pros at marketingpodcasts.com, the first search engine for marketing podcasts. Podcast imaging by audiobag.com.